in my experience, most people are the second most resilient person they know. They all have one story about somebody who survived something almost unimaginable and and is doing so well or is so kind or so out there and then themselves. And the reason I'm the second most resilient person I know for everyone is because I know intimately what I've been through and I'm still getting up every day. Hello and welcome to Year of the Pivot on the Beyond Networking Podcast. This season, we're learning from individuals and organizations who made monumental shifts in 2020 in order to keep their business alive and continue the mission. I'm your host, Brian Miller, an author, speaker, coach, and consultant on human connection. This episode is an interview with one of our featured experts for the season, Dr. Deborah Gilboa, professionally known as Dr. G, is a practicing family physician. But I wanted to speak with her because she's also an expert on resilience. Dr. G teaches families, individuals, teams, and businesses to do stress better. In this conversation, Dr. G teaches us what resilience actually is, why some people go through many difficult situations but never seem to get any more resilient, how some individuals and organizations were able to successfully pivot in response to the stress of 2020 while others weren't, and a specific set of strategies and techniques you can use to become more resilient starting today. Plus, she's an absolute riot, and you will soon find out why. Check the show notes for all the ways to connect with Dr. G, including an awesome free resource from her that outlines her guide to building resilience. Head to yearofthepivot.com for the Pivot Power newsletter, get notified when a new episode drops, the Pivot Pearl of the Week, and gain access to exclusive live streams, masterminds, and clubhouse get-togethers. And now, please enjoy this incredible conversation with Dr. G. This episode was made possible by Riverside.fm. Capture full, high-quality, raw audio and up to 4K video natively and without any internet interruptions. That's right. Even if the internet blips out during the live call, your recording remains pristine. Head to Riverside.fm for your free trial and a big thank you for sponsoring Year of the Pivot. Why don't we start here? These days, if you meet someone for the first time, virtually or otherwise, and they say, what do you do? How do you answer these days? I talk about my work as a family doctor because that's what I do in my community. That's how I connect in with the community that I live in. And because of everything that we've gone through with coronavirus in 2020, it is necessary for me to contextualize it for people that I'm a doctor. I'm going to be pro-vax. I'm going to be pro-mask. I'm going to be all about science. But the other thing that I talk about is that I'm a resilience expert. And that's where I get the cocked ear kind of <laughs> eyebrow that says, is that a thing? And what thing is it? <laughs> yeah. So what, what thing is it? What is a resilience expert? I have studied, written about, talked about, interviewed people about what it is that helps us keep going when we don't like how things are and get ourselves to a place where things are going better and then prepare for the next time that happens. 
So that I mean that that's that's such a, a good straightforward answer. Um, give give me a little bit more about that. I mean, what brought you to uh, caring about resilience? I mean, you know, I feel like we all kind of care about resilience and personal strength, but like you decided to to go all the way deep into it to the point of expertise. So what brought you there? In my experience, most people are the second most resilient person they know. They all have one story about somebody who survived something almost unimaginable and and is doing so well or is so kind or so out there and then themselves. And the reason I'm the second most resilient person I know for everyone is because I know intimately what I've been through and I'm still getting up every day. Mm -hmm. And that experience of feeling like I'm really resilient, anyone feeling like I'm really resilient, but boy, I also really feel how stressed I am and how overwhelmed I feel and what I'm not accomplishing. I judge myself by my unfinished to-do list. And in that way, I think, I'm kind of a fraud. A lot of people have a lot of imposter syndrome around their own resilience and ability to get through hard things. They feel like I am one hard thing away from total collapse. Mm -hmm. As a doctor, what I noticed is that as much as I do believe it matters that you have a doctor who asks good questions, who listens to your answer, who can diagnose and treat and formulate with you a plan that works for you, what I found is that none of that, none of that is as important to your future health and well-being as your own resilience. And so knowing that, how could I take care of people if I didn't understand better, not only what resilience is, but how we build it. Isn't that so interesting that, that everyone kind of feels like they're just one hard thing away from falling apart. And, uh, and, and you find this all the way at the top of every industry. In fact, if anything, the more successful, quote unquote, define that how you like, the more successful people get, the more imposter syndrome they feel, the more they feel like, wow, like how has nobody caught on to the fact that I don't know what I'm doing yet, right? A hundred percent. And, and I, you know, I, I wonder sometimes I've, you know, I've spoken about failure plenty in my programs over the years and, and in a lot of my work, but I, I often wonder if, if fear of success isn't worse than fear of failure that, well, what if I do this and people say yes, what if they say yes to the pitch and then I actually have to deliver? What if I take the promotion and then I'm not good at it? I mean, is, is, is that a concern? It is. And it's, this is what I, the, at the heart of the work that I talk about every change causes us to need resilience, even the change we want, even the change that we worked for and dreamed about, and certainly the change we didn't want or didn't expect. So every change, good, bad, predicted, unpredictable, causes us to face our own resilience abilities or not. Because every change we go through, the first thing our brain does is process loss. What am I going to lose? So like you get the the promotion or you get the opportunity that you pitched and you, you find out, you get the email like, yes, we want you or the call. The first thing your dang brain does is be like, oh, really? What am I going to lose? That means I'm going to lose all that time I thought I would spend on this other thing, or I'm not going to have the time I wanted to spend with my people, or I'm going to lose people's faith in me because what if I'm not actually any good at this, or I made it all up and I don't know how to do this. And as soon as your brain moves even a half a step forward, it goes to distrust. Is this really necessary? Is it really going to happen? Are they going to yank it at the last minute? Is it all going to fall apart? And, And once you believe that the change really is happening and you start to process your loss, Unfortunately, the next thing is you feel how uncomfortable you're going to be in this new situation. Even if it's something you wanted, you feel the discomfort. And and it's only then in the discomfort when you realize, okay, this change is happening, I think, and there's a lot of loss and I'm pretty uncomfortable, but I have some choices I could make. 
that's your resilient action. If you realize I have choices and you start to choose some and engage with them, now, no matter how you're feeling about your loss or distrust or discomfort, you're starting to act in a resilient way. And so you can see how if that happens with every change, then the positive can be in some ways even more upsetting than the negative because you think I should just be happy. Why is this hard? You know, that, that, that's, that reminds me of, uh, I've learned so much from my wife over the years because she's a, uh, licensed marriage and family therapist. And, you know, I, I, I was with, I actually, we started dating when she was in her first semester of her master's. And so I actually got to go through the whole journey of master's and licensure and all Does that with her. Does she call you guinea pig or is it just understood? <laughs> well, I have like so many divorces between my two parents and so many step families and stuff. When I feel like when we started dating and she found that out, she was like, oh, jackpot. Uh, you know, I get to study everything. <laughs> Uh, yeah. family get togethers were such a good case study for her, but you know, I've learned so much from her over, over the years, especially about, you know, to your point of what we're talking about here. And I, I, I wonder about the w- one, why we're so negative so easily all the time, you know, why is it that we go to that negative place? And, and I also wonder about the nature of pessimism versus optimism, because in, in the, I'm going to use the word research loosely because I'm, I'm using it in the colloquial sense here. But in in my research into that area, my reading into that area, pessimists have a more accurate worldview than optimists, but optimists are more successful. And I've always found that interesting. I agree. That's fascinating. So the first thing is, I and anyone who's ever had to tell any group of people about change, anyone who's been a manager, anyone who's in a leadership position, anyone who's a parent or a spouse and had to let people know about change, it can be very frustrating to feel like, oh, everybody's knee-jerk reaction is to be against change. Mm. But actually, have some compassion. Our brains go to that negative place first in order to keep us safe. What your brain is basically asking is, wait, okay, there's a change. Will all my basic needs still be met? And so as soon as I know that my basic needs will be met, then I might feel the loss a little bit, but it allows me to keep moving forward. I actually have to double check. Is this, you know, (laughs) is this actually a parachute or is it actually just a backpack that looks like a parachute? (laughs) Yeah, you better get that right. (laughs) Absolutely. So that going to a negative place first is simply a protective. It's like a like a speed bump or a guardrail or something that makes us sure that we're going to be safe with the Mm -hmm. new situation or that we can correct first whatever's going to make us the most unsafe. That issue about optimism and pessimism, though, is not inherent in that moment. Inherent in that moment is just your seatbelt locking up. Sometimes when you tap the brakes in your car, your seatbelt locks up and it saves your life. Much more often, your seatbelt locks up because you tap the brakes for a second, but you're actually just reaching to get a Coke from the backseat and it didn't need to lock up and now it's in your way and it's annoying. That, But that safety mechanism is just a safety mechanism. It doesn't say something about your character or an attribute of yours. It's how you frame it. The words you choose when you talk about it, when you your inner monologue, when you think about it, it's in that inner monologue or the words that you use out loud that really frame your expectations and what possibilities you consider. A big part of resilience is identifying your options. And the more options you're willing to consider, the more likely you are to be successful. 
Yeah, and that that's my favorite part about that that aspect of optimism is that optimists actually fail way more often than pessimists do, and it's because they try things that probably weren't going to work, but they're they're ah maybe it'll work right, and they they go for it. And I because I have a math degree, I like to make this joke, although it's not really a joke, uh, that you know if if you succeed one out of a hundred times, you are infinitely more successful than someone who's succeeded zero out of zero times, right? Infinitely, yeah. infinite. And, yeah. Good job, and, math geek. Right, totally. <laughs> right. I've never got to use my degree, so I use it for that one bit. So <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm so interested. Then uh, you must have your own story of resilience. Before we get into kind of what's been going on over the last year and the the personal resilience, as well as more to the point of this kind of the pivot project of the the professional resilience that it's taken so many people to survive. And in some cases, really thrive in in the COVID or post-COVID world. I mean, we're not post-COVID yet, but who knows when this is li- being listened to. Hopefully, there will be a post-COVID at some point that someone's listening to this. In. Everything changes <laughs> for good and bad. Everything yeah. changes. So bring me back then to your own uh maybe pivot stories in your life, not necessarily in the COVID world here, but uh where you came from in that. And and then maybe we can get into a little bit more about. Uh, resilience as it relates to what's been going on in the last year? Sure. So like most doctors, I was a theater major in college. (laughs) And uh, so actually when I was really little and people would ask me what I wanted to be, I would say a pediatric neurosurgeon Mm -hmm. because when a six-year-old says that it's precocious and adorable (laughs) and it got me a lot of positive feedback. But then I went to my grade nine biology class and had to dissect something and it totally grossed me out. And I didn't know then what I do now, which is that in puberty, most people have stronger visceral reactions to smells and sights and things than they do as adults. What I thought was, oh, well, okay, doctor's off the table. I'm out. Mm. Uh, And then I fell in love with theater. I fell in love with boys. I got, you know, theater was a place where both of those things could be a part of my life on the regular. And then I found out you could major in it in college. And I was lucky enough to get accepted to some schools that had good theater programs. And I told my parents I was going to school for theater. My dad said, no. And I said, you told me I could be whatever I wanted as long as it made me happy. And he said, I lied. I mean, without a trace of irony, by the way. Uh, Anyway. No. Long story short there, I did go to a really good drama program, worked and graduated in four years in the degree I started out in, in the college I started, I mean, really unusual, uh, mostly because it was so expensive. My parents made it clear there would not be an extra day of university. And so, um, and I was lucky enough to get work in that field. And I worked for several years in television and in theater. I got hired through a weird series of circumstances at an amazing, amazing theater in Chicago called The Second City. And I was working um, first in their touring company and then on one of the main stages, their resident stages. And uh, I worked there for a while and the guy I replaced had been there 27 years. And in my early to mid twenties, that sounded like actually forever. (laughs) And the more I, I was there, the more I realized that I also wanted to do some other things. I decided one Monday to call up a medical school and just see what it took because it was before the interwebs. So I couldn't research it. And this poor woman who answered the phone, I said, I'm thinking about applying to medical school. What's required? And she said, uh, well, college. And I was like, well, I mean, but what, like a major in what? And she said, college. I was like, I have one of those. So I finished out the season and I moved and I got myself an apartment. I took the four science classes that were required. I earned money as a sign language interpreter because I'd worked at a deaf theater company where I'd started to learn signs. So I 
kept learning sign and I worked as an ASL interpreter and I worked my way up into medical school financially and I became a doctor. And like, I got to tell you every interview I did, and I interviewed at like 14 medical schools, they all said, wow, would you produce our senior show? (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, of course I will. If you accept me to your med school. Yeah. Right. And I did produce the senior show of the med school that I went to university of Pittsburgh. And so, so that was like, that was this major shift that to me, seemed totally normal because I had done that. I'd done it as long as I wanted to. I'd gotten a great job. I'd seen what it was like. And then I was interested in something else. And I wanted to see if I could succeed in that way. What? <laughs> There's so many places to go with that. I was like, I, I, I started and then I was like, wait, I have seven different questions. Which one do I actually want to double down on? Um, first of all, congratulations on working at Second City because what, I mean, that's, I mean, for people who don't really know, I mean, what a, a it's a prestigious job. To it have. is. It really it is. It is for sure I mean, the only thing. I have four teenage sons now. It's the only thing that occasionally makes me cool for sure yeah, are the people yeah. that I worked with at Second City in the 90s. That's, yeah, that's, that's, that's unreal. That's a, that's a dream for life for many, many people. Uh, so that's, totally. that's amazing. And w- what a wild, um, I kind of want to ask you what you learned from doing that, that ended up helping you when you became a doctor. Uh, the hours in medicine are better. The, <laughs> <laughs> the people are not always, but often less drunk. No, yeah. um, honestly, <laughs> honestly, what I learned from improv that I've taken in every part of my life is that, uh, the only way to get more from someone is to find a way to say yes. Mm. And in improv, we say yes, and we add to it. And that opportunity to understand that if you want to end a relationship, if you want to end a conversation, uh, you say no. And as a family doctor, almost everything I'm trying to do is to get people to be honest with me and themselves in a way that has been too scary up until now, and to consider what might possibly encourage them to change a behavior. Mm. Family medicine is a great deal of helping people change a behavior that's getting in their way, in the way Mm. of their health, to be more resilient, to handle change better. And that's how I got so interested in resilience, because honestly, every way I can help someone, I can only help them if they make a change, not if I do. Yeah. Yeah. People don't change for other people. They change for themselves. Right. I mean, this is is something my it's funny. My, My grandfather, who was a he was a dentist all his life had a, a, and back, back in the, he, when he was a dentist originally, they weren't even wearing gloves yet. You know, I mean, he was a dentist back in the days. I'm sure he tapped out his cigarette (laughs) on the side before he helped the person. Well, you know, what's so funny is he (laughs) smoked a pipe when he was, when he was uh, younger, you know, kind of in his twenties. And, and when they came out with the very, my grandmother always said when they came out with the very first medical science, the first time it showed up anywhere that said, hey, smoking actually is bad for you. Uh, she said he quit that day. And she said how lucky he was that he was able to do that. He, wow. and, he and and to this day, I mean, he's 85 and he still goes, oh, man, I miss a pipe. Now he, has, he probably hasn't had it in 60 years. Uh, <laughs> but uh, in any regard, wow. so he learned hypnosis uh, back when it was first legalized for use in in medicine that you could use it. And he would do when, you know, when he would have maybe a pregnant patient who couldn't have anesthetic, you know, uh, the way that it was back then, I know things are different now. Uh, he would do hypnosis to do full root canals, you know, things like that with no pain, no wow, recollection. Cool? Yeah. And so, but he always used to say the same thing to, to the point that you just said, which is if somebody wanted to quit, you know, he, he'd also get people come on the side, Hey, can you help me quit smoking? Can you help me this? Cause I know, you know, hypnosis. And he'd say, well, why do you want to quit smoking? And if they said, well, my wife wants me to quit smoking, he'd say, I can't help you. Right. 
you know, even if you want to sure. quit for her, you have to want to quit for you. It has to be a change you want to make for yourself. Um, and yeah. And so, so you ended up becoming, a, <laughs> uh, you almost brushed over and then I became a doctor, which I feel like so many people forget how, how much of life and how complicated and how long, how difficult that is. So I you am became still a paying off my med school loans. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's I been bet. a while. <laughs> I bet. I bet. Yeah. Um, so you, you get to this point. So you, so you, you, you start to get really, you're really interested in resilience and, and you start to learn about this. And, and then at some point you decide that you're going to do workshops. You're going to work with kids, right? Young adults, teens, and you're going to start to build, uh, do what resilience speaking workshops, schools. What are you doing then? So first I got in, interested in how we teach kids to be resilient because by this time I had three, um, and now I have four and I thought, <laughs> okay, so how do, if resilience really is such key to well-being? How do we teach it? How do we draw it out of? And it's much easier to talk to adults about how to teach something to kids than how to teach something to ourselves or to each other. But in the last five years, I've realized that it's that's that's a little bit of a cop out. And I am still really interested in youth development. And I'm lucky enough to speak in the camp world and the educational world and scouting and all of that. But the bigger challenge has been how to approach adults, especially adults in the workplace, and say, hey, resilience, that's not a soft skill. And turns out 2020 conspired to make this argument for me that resilience is not a soft skill. Resilience is a foundational ability uh, without which none of your other goals are really going to get met as a company, as a team, or as an individual. And so understanding resilience became really important. But the good news is the thing that I talk about the most that seems to constantly surprise people is that resilience isn't a character trait. Resilience is a series of skills and actions that you can choose to pick up at any time in any situation. And I, I don't know about you, I find that very reassuring. You know, I, and I feel like depending on who you're talking to, they would either find that reassuring or very, um, or very upsetting. I feel like people wish that it was a character trait because I think I think there's some something to be said for when people think you're just born with it, they think, well, I don't have it. And now they don't have to work on it, right? They go, well, I, I don't have that skill that you know trait, i don't have whatever. a great singing voice so i don't have to join the choir exactly and, and i understand that although yeah. it turns out even even a good singing voice is a a growth commodity you can yeah. move that ball down the field but if you're born with a great singing voice then it gets easier you have to do less work to get to the end zone and i understand that yeah um and that's true of resilience in that people are born with different amounts and yeah. your early experiences, your past successes and past failures definitely can inform where you, where you happen to be right now on the field. Mm. But every single person can choose certain actions or build certain skills that will help them handle it. And why, why should you bother? Why isn't, why is it actually easier for you to approach it as a skill set rather than say, well, you know, I got what I got. So that's where I'm going to stay. It's because the reason we need resilience is stress. Mm -hmm. Everyone talks about how you should try to minimize stress. And then people get equally frustrated because you can't. A great deal of stress is unpredictable or uncontrollable. Mm -hmm. What matters is how you handle it. What resilience is, resilience is your fitness. It's your physical fitness. So if I said to you, Brian, you got to walk up three flights of stairs, you have a sense of your level of physical fitness and yeah. you know, am I going to be winded at the end of walking up those three flights of stairs? And you might say, no, not unless I was also carrying the baby and the car seat and the <laughs> diaper bag and two bags of groceries, plus talking on my phone. Yeah. yeah. Then I will be winded by the Just time the I baby. To the Just the baby would have winded me. One flight of stairs. Right. <laughs> but you also know that if you want to be able to walk up because now you moved into a, a 
third story walk up and you're going to yeah. walk to the grocery store to get your groceries and you still have to take care of that baby, that you better get yourself in better shape. Mm -hmm. You would know that exercise, actually, those stairs themselves were what will what get you to the point where you can walk up them and feel less winded. Well, if you know, because you have aspirations in your career, or you want to make a big change, or you want to take on a new relationship, even great stressors, you want to have a baby, you know, you're going to have more stress a year from now than you do now. How can you be less winded? How can you handle more stress and feel it less? Mm -hmm. Well, resilience, those skills that make up resilience, they are your training program. So it's, it's not enough, though, to simply recognize that you I feel like there's a lot of like the inspirational memes going around on, you know, on Instagram and stuff. And you see them, they're like, well, you've made it this far. So you know that you can keep going. It's not an, you have to be intentional, right? I mean, you can't, it's, it's not enough that you're still here. That doesn't mean you're a resilient person or that you've built resilience, right? So another myth that I blow up for people yeah. and some people like it and some people don't, but more often people don't like this one <laughs> is the idea that we build resilience simply by going through adversity. And, and I'll give you two examples. One, think of someone, and I will not ask you who it is. <laughs> think of someone in your life who's been through a lot of hard things and it never gets any easier for them. Every single setback is a tragedy, is a story, is a struggle, and there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. They've been through all these things, but they've not gotten much more resilient. In the same way that if I do want to be more fit, I maybe build a little bit of fitness when I park at a concert, and then I you remember back when we went to concerts, right? Uh, when I Vaguely. parked in a big parking lot, and I can't remember where I parked my car, and I wander around looking for my car, I guess I got a little bit of exercise, but yeah. it's not like a planned exercise program. Right. The good news about resilience is you don't have to get a trainer and a regimen and have lists at all. You have to simply name what you're doing, be a little bit intentional, and your resilience grows by leaps and bounds. So do you think then, you know, over the course of this, the Pivot Project, I've already done a dozen or so interviews and I'll have done many, many more by the time this all this all comes out. You know, I, I've heard these stories so far of just, inc just unbelievable people with these creative ideas and this just quick adaptation to something totally new and, and p totally changing the course of their business in order to keep their business alive, keep their employees and their families fed or, or whatever, or just even pr continue pursuing the mission. Do you think all of these people that made it this year through the, the year of the pivot, do you think that they had done this intentional work of building resilience, all of them just by chance? Or do you think that it's more likely that many of them built this new resilience because of this year that they, that, you know, is it more likely that they had it already and they just got lucky because they did? Or I think that, I think that this year really has helped people who were so inclined to recruit the resilience that they've built. Mm -hmm. and get a lot stronger. So, you know, I keep referring to these skills. Can I run through these eight skills really quickly yeah, and you'll see do. what I mean? Yeah, this would okay. be great. So, and, and let me tell people just briefly how I got here. The skills that I'm talking about are, you could go online today, Brian, and you could take a brief resilience um, scale or the adult res the resilience scale for adults. There are scientifically validated scales that measure individual resilience. Well, huh. when you look at the top five of those scales that have been validated and evidence-based tested, they all ask about basically eight skills. They ask in different ways and different amounts, but they ask about your ability to build connections. They ask about your ability to set boundaries, 
to open yourself to change, right? To be less resistant mm -hmm. to change, to manage discomfort. When you think about managing discomfort, not to avoid things that are uncomfortable, but to handle your discomfort without truly negative or dangerous coping mechanisms. And then to set goals, identify options, take actions and persevere. Those are the eight skills we're talking about when we ask, are you inherently resilient? There are also some attributes. There's faith and humor and optimism and some other attributes we ask about, but the doing, the skills are those eight skills. And so when you think about those people that you've interviewed so far, I'll bet you can be like, oh yeah, I can see how they had a lot of experience setting goals and identifying options and taking actions. I see how this year drove them to persevere in ways they hadn't before, or they, they had built connections and they relied on those. They were better at setting boundaries than your average bear. So yeah. all of those skills, but then they had that motivation. They had that why or that change that disrupted things. And as soon as they got through some of the loss and the distrust and the discomfort, and they thought about their choices, they were more optimistic. They had more humor, more faith. And faith doesn't necessarily mean religious faith. It means faith in something a little larger than yourself. Yeah. And they took a leap and they recruited all those skills. And if they intentionally continue to build connections and set good boundaries and manage their discomfort, then when they hit setbacks, because those people will experience more failure. One success does not then put us clear of all future failure. When they experience more failures, they'll find it easier to be less winded right. by those stressors. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, it, and right as you were describing those, it, it's, it's exactly, I, I was just thinking about the people I've already interviewed, thinking about my own story and the people I know who I haven't interviewed yet. And yeah, it was right down the line, uh, a, a whole bunch of those, especially the connection. I feel like people really, the a lot of the real big success stories of folks I've talked to this year, they really leaned hard on the goodwill of the connections they'd built for over the course of five, 10, 20 years in business and, and being a part of a community. I would say that one of the major advantages of this year coming as it did with the timing of where we're at in social media, thinking right. about things like Snapchat and TikTok right. and Twitter, it broke down walls. I could yeah. reach out. I would feel more comfortable <laughs> this year reaching out to almost anyone I had yeah. ever met or wanted to meet yep. and say, hey, do you have a minute for a conversation? Partially because we had more minutes. Yeah. We were doing less traveling. We were doing less of the things that keep us, sorry, this is, I'm, I'm crazy this month. I've heard that a lot less from people about their <laughs> schedule, maybe yeah. about their mental health, but not so much about their schedule. So yeah. we felt less like we were a burden for reaching out to people. We had more of an excuse because we're all having this massive shared experience. Yeah. So you could, you could authentically check in on anyone because you know they're going through something hard. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, it's it's so funny, maybe just a, a, a tangent or a side note, but I, I found myself saying that when I was speaking, doing this, did this like eight week ongoing support program for college students um, at a community college, you know, virtually this, uh, this mm -hmm. fall. And I was doing a whole lesson, a whole session on, on uh, networking, basically virtual networking or, or looking towards internships because they're community college students. And I said, I said, over the next few months, do not miss the window that is currently open right now. Anyone you've ever wanted to get to, the CEO, the founder, the people at the top, they're accessible in a way they've never been before and never will and be again never right be now. Because totally. <laughs> they're just sitting around like the rest of us on their phones all day. <laughs> Everyone's and doing the same thing. if you make that connection and yeah. you build relationships, then two years from now, when other people don't have access to them, you may. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. So, so what? Let's if if you have a minute to do this, let let's talk through maybe something. We can use me instead of some generic example. So my uh, my my wife and I, uh, we knew back in January uh, that she was pregnant with our first. We had planned out this year. You know what they say about making plans. And this was the year. Yep, we're planning the pandemic on you. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we were waiting for the 12-week mark uh, before telling anybody like you're supposed to. And so at the 11-week mark, we went into COVID lockdown pandemic. And so nobody even knew that she was pregnant, that we were having our firstborn. And we went through the entire first pregnancy, the entire birth, and have since spent three months with our firstborn alone. I mean, isolated from she, we didn't see anybody, you know, uh, uh, as far as people with, know, this could be fake. This could be a baby doll that you're just dressing up for your Instagram. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah. And so it, it was completely wild and we had so many things ripped away and, and the way I've described it over the last, you know, six, eight months is what we mostly had ripped away was the imagined future which is really interesting, right? It wasn't nothing that was promised. The, all the stuff you expect all your life, the, we're going to walk through baby stores and people are going to, oh, congratulations. And look, oh, look, socks. And, you know, all that <laughs> stuff that you expect, the baby shower, the friends, the the whole thing. You know, it wasn't anything actually promised to us. It was just imagined in the future. And that was ripped away. And that was really hard for a while. But we eventually, if not made our peace with it, moved forward from it and figured out at some point, I remember saying in some version of these words, probably multiple times, out loud, not just for my wife's sake, but for my sake as well, saying out loud, this is the year we got. And, and the, you know, the, you know, our, our son's being born into this unless, and I remember saying to her, unless we spend his entire childhood telling him how much better the world was before he was here, this is the world he was born into. This is it, you know, and maybe masks will be, we don't know, maybe masks will be a part of normal public life for a long, for, for a long time. And, and, and as long as we don't keep telling him how much it sucks and it used to be better, then that's going to have to be okay. All we can do is then the, all of a sudden you're like the crusty grandpa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, get off my lawn. I do feel a little exactly. get off my lawn lately. I don't know when that changed in my <laughs> life, but I'm like, Oh no. Um, so maybe you can, maybe you can use that as an example of, you know, here's something that, I mean, just tremendous, easily one of the most stressful things, if not the most stressful thing, you know, to go through it while my, it looked like my career might've been decimated, you know, kind of was decimated overnight. So I was rebuilding my career with baby on the way. We're not going to have any help being first time parents. I mean, so many things happened all at the same time. And what what you're talking about is what your brain is supposed to do. So if the change, and you can pick any change, you know, I've done this activity with large groups and with small groups and with individuals, you can pick any change. You can pick something good, something dreamed for something. And, and in this situation, you kind of both, I bet actually, Brian, if we went back to January, when the, you know, when the stick turned positive (laughs) and just, and for a minute, it's just that secret that you and your partner know. (laughs) And it, you know, you, you start to like feel what's it going to be like, wow, yeah. we've been wanting this. We, I'm, I'm going to assume, you know, it causes it. So it was probably, you know, something <laughs> on your minds to do yeah. on purpose at some point. Yeah. Although according to national Institute of health, about 75% of pregnancies are surprises. They may be wanted, <laughs> yeah. but they're not necessarily planned. No, th- In this, case, this was planned. So, yeah. yeah. So you find out, so you wanted it, you planned for it. You find out you got it. Even with that change, your brain probably thought, wait, what are we going to lose? And oh, you yeah. might feel guilty about that. You might suppress it. You might skip over it as fast as you could. I had an um, internal meltdown. 
Yeah. Right. Of yeah. like, oh, I, I like this vibe we have going the two of us. What's this parasite? I mean, beautiful baby going to do to us. Right. <laughs> um, and and then the next thing is, is it true? How many of these, I mean, how many people buy multiple pregnancy tests just to check that distrust, distrust the test? What if I miscarry? What if, what if, what if? Then as soon as you start to believe that like, oh yeah, no, she's puking in the bathroom. This is a real thing. (laughs) Then you actually, you think like I should be happy and, and you feel the discomfort first and it's just your brain's way of protecting you. But then, so let's go to a change that you experienced that everybody experienced. And that was the shutdown, whatever that meant in everybody's life. In your life, that meant a bunch of things. It meant a change in your expectations about your business. You had the first loss, some of the first losses you thought about is what won't this pregnancy journey be like that we really thought it would be like, how do we keep her safe? How do we keep this tiny, almost a person safe? Um, But other losses too. You may have had some distress. Did you have a moment where you thought, do we really have to follow these rules? Certainly we can get together with the people most important to us and still have a baby shower. Certainly we could find a way. There's a loophole. We're special. We're smarter than the average bear. There's got to be a way to do this. (laughs) Yeah. I I had an out loud conversation when we were trying to figure out maybe like the whole family was, you know, we're sitting outside 30 feet apart in our backyard with, you know, uh, with uh, her, her folks and uh, who live in the area. And, you know, we still kept even everyone's like, it's six feet. I'm like, that's not how science works. Um, yeah. It doesn't stop at six feet. So, you know, we spaced out like 30 feet apart and had a permanent backyard set up for, you know, so we could at least see her parents a little bit. And we're, you know, the, the whole conversation, I was sitting there listening to a whole conversation about, well, maybe there's a way we can do this in person and in shifts and have prepackaged foods. And, and, and all I wanted to do was believe that was possible. And then privately, I finally, I said in, you know, not out loud in the group, but I said to my wife, I said, you know, if we do that, we're no different than all the people that I've been railing against all year that think that they're the special ones that really know what they're doing. We can't, we can't do it. And then as soon as you decided that, as soon as you realized that truth for yourself, that you couldn't do it you probably, instead of feeling relieved, felt uncomfortable. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was very uncomfortable. Yeah. But then you thought, okay, you know, so if that, if the truth is we're not going to gather in person, I do still have options. I do still have this virtual world. I wonder if we could have, and you might have considered a virtual baby shower. That's what we did. You might consider (laughs) if you you live in a place where this could happen, car parades. I saw this amazing meme that said, you know, 20 years from now, they're going to be a whole bunch of 30-year-olds that when they hear cars honking, they don't think that something's gone wrong. They think, oh, whose birthday is it? (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. (laughs) Yeah. No, we did a Zoom baby shower. Yeah. And as soon as you realized, here are our options, that's the one we like best, there still can be a piece of you in loss, in distrust. Is this the right thing? Is this necessary? Is this making a difference? Are we really saving anybody? In discomfort, this isn't what we wanted. This doesn't feel like we envisioned it feeling. But you put one of your game pieces up on that choice square. And then as soon as you actually started to act on that choice, you moved your game that game piece up to engagement. You were engaging with your family, you're engaging with this pregnancy in some kind of way. And what that allows, that engagement, is for you to start to feel reunified, not necessarily with your family, not even necessarily with your small new nuclear family, but with yourself. Mm-hmm. Because when I ask audiences to define the word resilience, they always start off by giving me some version of the ability to snap back after difficulty. And I say, yes, if you're a rubber band or a Tupperware container. But if you're a person, we don't snap back. We incorporate that experience and resilience means coming through it 
to a, a version closer to who you want to be. So you came through that experience closer to someone who doesn't put aside the needs of his community or the safety and well-being of people just to have a baby shower. You got to be authentic and true to that, but also somebody who doesn't ignore a major milestone in his family's life and wants to celebrate it. Okay, so th- th- this is awesome. Uh, l- let me let me ask you to do one more kind of mini exercise here then because this is so useful and and really it's it's just because these are the kind of things that I've thought about and even talked about or talked around so often because it's so related to obviously one of the reasons we we got along so easily so quickly is there's a lot of overlap between my work in human connection and, and your work in resiliency as as you even mentioned earlier um being one of the pillars of of resiliency so someone like me I made my big pivot this year and it one mostly as a speaker, the pivot to virtual. It took a month. I mean, it was hard. Don't get me wrong; it was hard. It was fraught with anxiety, but I did it. And 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 compared to other types of pivots, it really wasn't that bad. Like uh, I have friends who are uh, you know full time jugglers. That's a harder pivot to make to virtual. <laughs> it just is, you know, just by the very nature of what it is. Uh, musicians have almost completely yeah. been unable to to shift. Like full-time professional musicians who make their living doing that have been very hard to shift virtual. They've had to make other pivots in their life. But for me, one of the reasons the pivot was doable and I did relatively quickly and, in, and very successfully, even objectively, um, is because... I was relying on 16 years of being self-employed and I, I had to take a moment where I just went back and I went, I've been through stuff before that I thought was the end of my career. I remember thinking that was the end of my career and then that was the end of my career and then that was the end of my career. And somehow my business has only ever grown and I've only ever been able to keep going. And and I went, somehow I'm gonna get through this if for no other reason that I have to, I've got a baby on the way. But <laughs> but you know, but I went, but I had a lot of stuff, many years and many experiences to rely on in order to figure out how to move forward and convince myself that I I would be able to find a way through. So my question is, suppose, because the Pivot Project is really designed to be a blueprint, uh, the book uh, when it comes out for future artists, freelancers, entrepreneurs, um, business owners, nonprofits, et cetera. Suppose that there's someone who's relatively new in business, whether they're young or not is irrelevant, but suppose they're relatively new in business or in their mission, um, whatever they're doing, and they don't have those years of experience of having gone through difficult times and all that. How would you recommend to them, what would you say to those people to start to prepare themselves for the next time they need to be able to call on that resilience? What should they do? First, I want you to really think about your own expertise. And I'm not talking about what you're going to build your business on or what your pivot is about. I mean, your expertise in yourself. You are an expert, not only in what you've been through, but in how you handle what happens to you. So one of the things that I recommend is actually a really simple exercise where you brainstorm a list. And I hope this takes you days to do, because I hope that you end up with a really, really long list of every coping mechanism you've ever tried when you don't like how you feel. Mm. Managing discomfort is so crucial to being resilient because what you're saying, Brian, is you were super uncomfortable, maybe scared, maybe angry, maybe ashamed of what you were having to go through, but you're like, but... I have been through this before. I have managed this before. And so I'm saying to you, even if you've not been through anything in a work way that looks anything like what's happening to you now, what about when you were a teenager and you had to get shots or you had to make a presentation you didn't want to make, or you had to explain something you'd done wrong to someone, or just somebody hurt you? 
all the different ways that you've ever managed your feelings. Then now you've got this long, long list. And what I want you to do is I want you to scratch out all the things that are damaging to yourself or someone else. Mm. I don't mean stupid, right? Like Candy Crush, whatever. I don't <laughs> mean things that are like, that are like, just might be a time suck. I mean, things yeah. that are actually damaging, yeah. damaging alcohol intake, damaging relationships, whatever. Scratch out those things. Now you have a list of neutral and positive coping mechanisms for when you're uncomfortable. Then if you want to get a little bit more nuanced, you can circle or write a letter next to the ones that you can do in different settings. Put an H by all the ones that you can do at home. Um, put a W at all the things you can do while you're working. Mm. You can give yourself different lists of resilience activities you can do when you don't like how you feel so that, and the longer a list you have, the more of a menu you have to know that you have what you need to manage discomfort. As long as you can manage discomfort in a way that isn't damaging, you're going to give yourself the breathing space you need to be resilient. That's great. That's, that's, that's awesome. That that's a re and it's a really, really concrete place to start. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, is there anything else that's on your mind related to the pivot project resilience um, that you want to share before we, and, and please make sure that we get uh, wherever you'd like people to find you, obviously um, make sure you share that as well. Absolutely. The, the thing that I want you to remember is that you have the tools and the skills at your disposal. You may want to strengthen them, but you know, if, if running starts with walking, you know how to walk. And the same is true of resilience. And if you're not sure, if you're listening to this and you're like, okay, Dr. G, but you don't know me, I don't. That's absolutely true. You're an expert in you. But there are a few other people in your life that you trust who are also an expert in you. So you might interview them uh, in the same way that Brian's mm. interviewed so many amazing people for this project. You might ask them about the times that they've had to go through something hard or ask them what they've noticed in you mm. that leads you to, and, and just by asking, you'll be building connections. Yeah. You'll be identifying options and all of that will help you be just having the conversation with anyone who it, you respect and is, is caring about you. You're going to build your own resilience, but you're also probably going to learn some insight about yourself that you can't see because you're too busy feeling all the things you're feeling. I love that exercise of going to the people who maybe uh, know you and care about you more than anybody else. And, and everybody's got at least a few of them, you know, the people who are always going to be your cheerleader, going to them and saying, you know, hey, can, can you take some time and write down five adjectives you would use to describe me uh, if you were describing me to somebody else, um, you know, that kind of a thing and doing it for them as well, you know, doing back. And I think most people will be absolutely shocked at how other people see them because it's so different than we see ourselves to your earlier point in this conversation all the way at the beginning. And Brian, you and I know that it can feel really awkward to go and ask that. It's like asking for a gift, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. But you might throw Brian under the bus. You might say, hey, I'm doing this pivot project and my homework is. <laughs> um, so, so we're giving this to you as homework. Yeah. It's optional homework. It's extra credit. <laughs> but we're giving it to you as an assignment. So you have that to lean on when you go to someone and you say, Hey, can I turn on my voice recorder? Because I, I want you to have it written down as Brian suggested or videoed or recorded. So you can listen to it when you're alone. It's really yeah. hard to listen to your strengths and, and your obstacles, but it's really actually hard to listen to positive feedback in front of someone because you're struggling to believe it, to really take yeah. it in. So have a way that you can go back and look at it when you're alone so you can process it and enjoy it without feeling like you're being judged for how you're taking it. 
Yeah. And you know what? That just also made me realize one of the way, the best ways, if you're uncomfortable doing this is because like you said, it's at, it feels like asking someone for a gift. So you can give it first. You can approach them and say, Hey, I heard about this really cool thing and, and here's what it is. And I just did it for you here and have it folded up in a piece of paper or send them a file where you said it out loud and into a recording and say, I did this for you. Would you be willing to do this for me? Um, or, uh, or you can use the, uh, the Chris Voss technique and turn it on the negative and say, would you be totally unwilling to do this for me? Which everybody would say no to, uh, which is a much better way to phrase things. I, uh, I find myself saying, doing that in emails a lot with people. Would it be totally unreasonable to ask you for a testimonial? Well, it's not totally unreasonable. Um, <laughs> it's so. a little unreasonable. I'll be annoyed with you, but now I guess I'm stuck doing it. Just <laughs> so, uh, okay. Where should, where should we find you? Where should we connect with you? Do you like a website, LinkedIn, Instagram? Where are you? I like LinkedIn a lot and Twitter, but the easiest way to find me is my website, which is yeah. askdrg.com. So good. Askdrg.com. How did you how did you ever get that URL? It's such a good URL. Yeah. It's because I'm old. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Askdrg.com. And I'll make sure I'll have your uh, your LinkedIn um, profile there as well, because I know a lot of folks in and the actually, world. What I'd love to put in the show notes for this is um, that resilience cycle. I have just a two minute video that explains it and a download where you can actually see the cycle in the six game spots. Uh, And using that for yourself or with your team can be really a valuable way to understand where's their big game piece and what are they still feeling about a change that you're going through. That's awesome. We'll have that in the show notes, description, et cetera, et cetera. Anywhere that this ends up being, whatever version of that is, wherever this is, um, it'll, it'll be there. So thank you so much for for your time for sharing this this is like super super uh enlightening really really useful uh, in terms of figuring out how to think through all these stories and and hopefully really help uh and impact future generations of folks get through whatever the hard thing in their life is going to end up being i'm so pleased to be here because this is a whole group of people who are thinking about a change that they want and it's still hard. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. And uh, stay safe. Stay healthy. You I don't too. have to tell you to wear a mask. Happy you holidays. You do not have to tell me to wear a mask. <laughs> <laughs>